Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. With each message and series, we hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. Okay, well, Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, I'm Pastor Tim. Let me welcome you to Liquid Church 2022. It is a brand new year, so let's give a big warm welcome to our live locations. Everybody at Church Online, good to see you guys. Hey, thanks for inviting me in your homes today or your campus. I hope you had a relaxing break with your family and friends over New Year's. I know some of you um, have loved ones who've been impacted by COVID. And uh, as your pastor, I just want you to know we are continuing to pray for God's healing and full recovery for each and every one of you. Uh, Personally, our family is doing well. Uh, We had a little break. We're healthy. We're rested. I feel replenished, ready to go. So today we're jumping into a series called Skeptics Welcome, because Liquid is a church that welcomes skeptics. And if you're a skeptic who doesn't really believe in God or you have doubts, I want you to know, hey, you're welcome here at this church, okay? You don't have to be a Christian to come to Liquid. In fact, maybe you're, you're tired of Christianity being defined by politics, me too. <laughs> Maybe you like Jesus, but the church, eh, not so much. This is a safe place for you. And uh, at all of our locations, we actually have people who are returning to church. Maybe you've been hurt or you've stayed away for some time, or you're like, I'm not sure exactly what I believe, Tim. Let me tell you, as, uh, as pastor, skeptics are welcome at Liquid Church. In fact, I believe this series is going to bless both longtime believers as well as those who have questions or doubts about faith. And over the next four weeks, I hope you will invite the skeptic in your life to join us or tune in online. Uh, Let me tell you what inspired this series, okay? This past fall, I met a fascinating guy by the name of John Dickerson. Uh, I was out in San Diego with a small group of leaders, and we kind of struck up a conversation. And I find out that John was an investigative journalist, okay? He's a news reporter. And uh, John told me a little bit about the writing articles, investigating, you know, the corruption of powerful people, politicians. He wrote a series on exposing prison abuses and investigative stories about meth labs. It was fascinating. He's interviewed immigrants crossing the Arizona desert. And I was fascinated because John said to me, he said, Tim, basically I'm a professional skeptic. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, that's what a good journalist is trained to do. We're skeptics. We don't take things at face value. We investigate firsthand and we follow wherever the evidence leads. And so I asked him what his most recent book was, and he said, oh yeah, it's called Jesus Skeptic. A journalist explores the credibility and impact of Christianity. I was like, sounds interesting. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I'm a millennial journalist. He's in his 30s. He said, our generation is full of skepticism about institutions like the church. So I wanted to investigate Christianity's records on things like human rights and freedom, science, medicine. How about racial equality? He said, I want to measure If the people who follow Jesus make the world a worse place or a better place. And I want to base that on facts, not just feelings or personal opinions. Because let's be honest, guys, there's a lot of skepticism out there today, isn't there? Much of it with good reason, by the way. I mean, can we be honest? I mean, the church, capital C Church, has had so many abuses and scandals in recent years. We've seen a parade of leaders abusing power, sex scandals, moral failures, failing to listen to victims, to be a voice for the voiceless. So I'm just telling you, it's very easy to get cynical because there's a lot of skepticism in the church, especially for millennials and Gen Z. And John said, Tim, basically, I wanted to examine what the impact the teaching of Jesus has had across human history. Do Jesus' teachings hold back social justice 
or do they advance human progress? And he based his investigation not on historical evidence, he said, he said or he said, say, not on the Bible. He said nothing against the Bible. He said, I just wanted to use my secular investigative training to look at historical manuscripts, real-life people, and non-Christian artifacts. So I did what any good investigative pastor would do. I went home that night and I Googled him. <laughs> and I discovered that John is an award-winning journalist who's written for the New York Times, USA Today, and he won the Livingston Award in 2014 for young journalists given by NBC and ABC News. So this guy's the real deal. Um, I read his book over break and highly recommend it to you. It was eye-opening. And he wrote this. He says, when it comes to Christianity, my 10-year investigation has convinced me that my generation of Americans, millennials born in the 1980s and 1990s, has been largely denied the truth about Christianity's influence and record on social justice. We have been told the negative moments in Christian history and the positive moments from other world belief systems. But we have not been exposed to the whole truth of the Christian record so that we can decide for ourselves whether Jesus' teachings and movement would be helpful to our personal lives and to the positive society we want to build. In other words, I get it, guys. Today's generation isn't just asking, like, is Christianity true? They want to know, is Christianity good? Does it lead to human flourishing and progress for everybody? Or does it lead to bigotry and, and backwards thinking? Does it inevitably move to, you know, self-protection and abuse of power? Or does it inspire a life of sacrificial service to people in need? So for the next four weeks, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to examine the evidence. We're going to look firsthand in the Bible. We are going to look at Scripture. We are in church. But then we're going to compare it to see if historical record, firsthand testimonies, and original artifacts confirm or contradict the claims of Christ. Let me show you some of the evidence that we're going to examine. This week, we're going to look today at Jesus, history, and human flourishing. Like, how can you even know Jesus existed based on historical evidence? And what was the impact of his followers in areas like, you know, ending slavery or establishing hospitals, championing women's rights? Next week, we're going to look at Jesus, justice, and racial equality. Have Christ's followers been helpful or harmful to the global fight for racial justice? Very relevant topic for the time we're living in. And then the third week, we're going to look at Jesus, faith, and science. This is what I'm excited about because a lot of skeptics, they say, no, no, faith and science are incompatible. Like, you ever hear that? Like, you can't be a person of intellect and deep faith. But we're going to explore the surprising Christian foundations of the scientific revolution in modern medicine. And then in week four, we're going to hear from John Dickerson himself. We're going to, we become friends. I invited him to speak at Liquid about the role of experiential evidence in exploring faith. So all in all, guys, what we're doing is we're kicking off the year with a series on apologetics. Can you say that? Apologetics. What that is is an intellectual defense of the reasonable truth of spiritual beliefs or doctrines. Keywords, intellectual and reasonable. You might be surprised to find that Christianity is not just about emotion or mystical, you know, what I believe and I can't see. Christianity stands up quite well to scrutiny, and you don't have to check your head at the door to have faith in Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll actually invite the skeptic in your life in the coming weeks. Maybe you've got a kid in college who's kind of drifting away, or, or you, you know, Uncle Joe who always got a reason for why, you know, he can't trust any of the Christians. Because let me just tell you, the clarity of the primary evidence, not just biblically, what we're going to explore is going to challenge a lot of your biases and prejudices, as it did for me. So let's jump in, okay? In the Gospel of John, Jesus made this famous claim. I want to read it together. I'll put it up on the screen. He said this. He said, I am, let's say it together, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. Now that is a pretty bold spiritual truth claim. Notice Jesus didn't say, hey, I have the truth. He said, I am the truth. (laughs) Jesus was unequivocal. He claimed to be the Son of God. And he said, hey, anybody who follows me, you're going to discover a life of meaning and purpose, of peace and joy, as I connect you to your creator, your father in heaven. Now, what's crazy is that out of the 7 billion people in the world right now, about 2.3 billion believe the claims of Jesus to be true. So think about this. Right now, one in every three people in our planet sincerely believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead. They believe Jesus is God, that he'll return to set up a kingdom of peace and prosperity. So it makes Christianity right now the largest social movement in human history. So understand the stakes of this. The Jesus story is either among the greatest scams ever perpetrated on humanity, among the greatest news ever told. But how can we even know, like, was Jesus a real person? Like, did he even exist? Like, apart from your personal beliefs, is there hard historical data bias-proof evidence that confirms the life of Jesus of Nazareth, whose words you just read. The reality is, when you look at the evidence outside the Bible, you'll be surprised to find 15 ancient writers who wrote in detail about Jesus and his early followers. Let me show you one. There's a revered ancient historian named Flavius Josephus. They call him Flava Joe. (laughs) Flavius Josephus, he was not a Christian, but he lived during the era, same era as Jesus, and let me share a page of his historical writing. Flavius Joseph said this, he said, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Now, Pilate, historical person, condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning who the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, again, Josephus is one of 15 ancient writers outside Christianity, outside the Bible. These guys are Jewish, they're Greek, they're Roman, who wrote about the existence of Jesus as an actual historical person. Not a myth, not a legend. In fact, we have today far more objective evidence for Jesus' existence than for most other historical figures like Plato, or Aristotle, or Socrates, who lived thousands of years ago. So the widespread global impact of Christianity started with the historical person of Jesus Christ, and that fact is indisputable among secular historians. Even Tacitus, Tacitus was a a Roman historian from the first century, and he described how Jesus' followers, what came to be known as Christians, you and I, spread rapidly from Judea to Rome. Here's what he wrote in his ancient annals. He said this, Nero, again, it was grounded in history. The emperor Nero fastened guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. They were called Christians by the populace. Christus, that's an ancient way of saying Christ, from whom the name had its origin. He suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion. This was during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And this is so funny, he writes this, he goes, a most mischievous superstition, the belief that Jesus was God, Thus checked for a moment, but again, it broke out, not only in Judea, but even in Rome. Now, these two ancient texts, what I've just shown you, are examples of primary evidence. Can you say that with me? Primary evidence. Historical writers outside of Christianity confirming 
the existence of Jesus and early Christians. So understand, Jesus spoke truth, and he lived in such a way that first hundreds, then thousands, then millions, and now ultimately 2.3 billion people are motivated towards deep belief and radical action. And the primary evidence is overwhelming. Historian H.G. Wells, again, not a Christian, he said this. He said, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. <laughs> but I must confess as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth, is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. But see, to me, I'm like, that's interesting. And if you take a class in college in apologetics, you'll learn this stuff, and, and it's pretty compelling. But to me, it's not just the historical documents. It's the lives Jesus transformed that I find most compelling. I like hearing people's stories. And the people that Jesus inspired to heal our broken world. If you turn to more modern history and you look at the life, for instance, of somebody like Frederick Douglass. You guys remember him? You probably learned about him in high school. He lived in the 1800s. He escaped slavery a decade before the Civil War. Well, Douglass experienced horrific physical and racial abuse. He had every right to spend his life isolated, angry, and bitter about the injustice that's been done to him in the South. But instead, Frederick Douglass channeled his anger into a courageous fight to end slavery and bring freedom and human rights to millions of people. And it's interesting because as I read Douglass's writings, in preparation for this, I was surprised to learn that the person of Jesus was the inspiration, the catalyst behind his work to abolish slavery. Here's a first-hand excerpt Douglas wrote in his autobiography. Listen to this. He says, In my loneliness and destitution, I longed for someone who I could go, as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen was the means of causing me to feel that in God, I had such a friend. I consulted a good colored man named Charles Lawson, and in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my cares upon God. This I sought to do. And though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I, I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. The good old man told me that the Lord had great work for me to do, and I must prepare to do it. Frederick Douglass became one of the most unstoppable forces to end slavery in the United States. He actually would describe the horrors of slavery on stage to packed audiences in the northern states, and a few times, slave masters from the south came to burn down the lecture halls wherever Douglass spoke. But understand, it was his faith in Jesus Christ that motivated him. Specifically, he pointed to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He said, when Jesus said, he has sent me, let's read this together. He has sent me to what, church? Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Douglas not only invited Christ in his heart, he took his words to heart. And that became his battle cry for declaring freedom, racial equality, and actually ending slavery. We're going to talk more about Jesus' impact on the racial justice next week. But this is what researchers call primary evidence. It's the most tamper-proof, bias-proof type of evidence in any investigation because you can see for yourself what key people in history actually believed about Jesus and then how it impacted our world in real time. It's remarkable. If you look at the primary evidence, you'll discover that everywhere that you turn right now in our broken world, and there's a lot that's broken, and you look at the fight for human rights, the elevation of women, the founding of universities and hospitals caring for the sick, what you will most often find 
is a passionate Christ follower, not a casual Christian, a committed, passionate Christ follower inspired by the teaching of Jesus. Like a woman named Mary Mose in the 1800s, because she took the Gospels to heart. Mary was captivated by the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You guys remember when Jesus described his core mission to his disciples? Jesus said this, this is how you know I'm the Son of God. He said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And those words pierced Mary's heart. This idea that, man, God is in the business of healing broken lives. And I, he's inviting me into that battle, caring for the sick and poor. And so Mary, she lived in Minnesota, and she got her chance in 1883 when an F5 tornado flattened Rochester, Minnesota. That's a picture of it. 1880s, obliterated the city, injured thousands of people, demolished homes. And in the middle of this mess, God planted Mary Mose. Now, you can tell from her religious gear, she became a devoted follower of Jesus. She took these words of Christ so seriously, care for the poor, heal the sick, help the lame walk, the deaf hear. She took these words so seriously, she actually gave up being married and having a family so she could just be all in on following Jesus, on loving orphans and caring for the sick. And so Mary finds herself in the middle of this mess in Minnesota. It's a humanitarian disaster. There's broken bodies, hurting people, injured by this tornado, and there was no hospital, you understand, in Rochester like we have today. Back in the 1800s, doctors only treated rich people because the upper class were the only people who could afford doctors. So if you were poor, if you were an orphan, if you were a widow, poor people went without medical care. <laughs> you just got in your bed, you laid there, family cared for you, hoped for the best. But Mary Mose felt like this wasn't fair. She felt like Jesus' call here to care for the least of these, love your neighbor as yourself, that applies to everybody. And so she began caring for the sick, nursing them back to health, and, and then she became friends with a young local doctor and said, would you give some of your time to help the sick? And he said, well, no, I only treat paying patients. But Mary had this bigger vision. She had a God-sized vision. She said, listen, what if we create a place where poor people could come and the homeless could receive free care? And she convinced this young doctor to help, and he, she said, listen, if I gather a few of my friends to be nurses, could you gather some of your physician friends to, 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 to treat patients? And Instead of a doctor's office, we could, like, create a little hospital. And so that young doctor in Minnesota got a few other doctor friends on board together. They started this little troop caring for the sick and the poor and the diseased and dying. And Rochester, Minnesota became a regional hub of medical care. The name of that young doctor? Dr. William Mayo. Get the connection? Mary Mose was the spark, the catalyst for the founding of the number one hospital in America today the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Today, if you go to the Mayo Clinic, you will find right in the center of their campus a hospital called St. Mary's after Sister Mary Mose, just an ordinary person who gave her life fully to Jesus and has done extraordinary good for humanity. Guys, millions of lives have been saved through the life-saving techniques that have come out of the Mayo Clinic. Why do I tell you this story? Because what Mary Mose illustrates is that God uses ordinary people to devote their lives to Jesus Christ to do extraordinary good. I, I know you might think, but Tim, I'm, uh, yeah, that's great. I'm not like Mary Mose or Dr. Mayo. I'm just telling you, God uses ordinary people who devote their lives fully to Jesus Christ to do extraordinary good in this world. 
If you read the life of Jesus and the people that he picked to be his disciples, you guys know they were messed up. They were nothing special, just ordinary. God doesn't use perfect people. He prefers to pick ordinary people who fully believe in him to transform the world. So I don't know what kind of, you know, tornado devastation you're facing in your life or family. Maybe you're going through a tornado right now in your life or a tornado of, of, of COVID or cancer. Maybe you're going through a divorce or a business failure. Look, right now there's tornadoes of, you know, sickness and division and justice impacting all of us, but I'm just telling you, God can take a tornado that killed 37 people and turn that into a hospital that saves hundreds of thousands of lives. If there's just one person who will take the words of Jesus to heart. Jesus said this, he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me, let's read this together, will do what? The same works that I have done, and what? Even greater works. Say that with me. Even greater works. Because I'm going to be with the Father. Isn't that nuts? <laughs> Jesus said his followers, every, all that's, everyone who believes, will do the same works that he did, and even greater works after he returned to heaven. That's kind of like, I mean, it seems like, you know, like, hey, we do some good things, but is that like real? Is that realistic? And that got me thinking, have you ever noticed in any city, the best hospitals tend to have Christian names like St. Mary's or St. Joseph's or St. Luke's or Mercy Emanuel or New York Presbyterian. Do you, have you ever wondered why do so many hospitals have Christian names? Like seriously, I'm not getting snarky, but like why aren't there any world-class hospitals named after Karl Marx or Confucius or Muhammad? And the answer is, because we can trace the leading breakthrough innovations in modern medicine all the way back to the founders who were devout Christians. In Jesus' day, life expectancy was 30 or 40 years. Today it's doubled. It's about 80 years in the developed world where modern medicine, hospitals, healthcare, right, are all available to us. But do you know where that began? It began all the way in the second century when Christ followers begin caring for the outcasts of society, the lepers, the diseased, the weak, the dying. In Roman culture, I was reading this, it's fascinating, Roman, um, historians described how pagans, non-Christians, when they had a special needs child, they didn't call it that, they said, deformed baby. They would throw the babies in the river. That was totally acceptable, because they didn't want them. But it was the early Christ followers who waded out into the waters to rescue those children. They'd actually take them into their own families and adopt them. Why? Because they were inspired by the words of Jesus. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news proclaimed to the poor and the vulnerable. And the early Christians came to believe that all life was sacred, made, stamped in the image of God. And in the Middle Ages, Christians started building orphanages, hospitals, and, and centers to care for society's outcasts because they read how their Savior, Jesus, how he washed the feet of his disciples. And so they said, we're going to humbly take up a towel and serve society's most hurting and so understand whenever earthquakes or fires or plague broke out with death and suffering, most people fled the area, but the early Christians ran straight towards a disaster, caring for the sick and the dying, igniting a movement of compassion and health care that the world has never seen. Again, you're like, well, you're biased, Tim. You're a pastor. You're going to say all these nice things about Christians. Don't take my word for it. Look at the primary evidence. Look at the top 10 hospitals today in America. Here is a list from a non-Christian source. Do you notice anything in common? Anything? Anybody? <laughs> I 
Nine out of the top 10 hospitals in America were started by devout Christ followers motivated by Jesus' commitment to care for the poor. Look at the list. You've probably heard of many of them, the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins Hospital. You guys know that one. It's a global leader in medical research. John Hopkins, who is that? That's a Quaker Christian who left his family fortune behind to create a hospital to help former slaves because they had no money. He said, I want to educate those who can't afford to pay for school. Because he grew up in a Quaker Christian home. Johns Hopkins learned that life was to be spent in the service of others, like Jesus taught. So what he did is he split his fortune. He created a university, as we know as Johns Hopkins, and the first ever research hospital based on Christian principles. The motto of Johns Hopkins, let me show you the, the crest. Veritas vos liberabit. It's Latin for the truth will set you free. Those are the exact words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Then you will know the truth, he said. And the truth will set you. Everyone, you make the connection? The most important global research hospital in the world is founded on the words of Jesus, is funded by a devout follower of Jesus who said, I want to help the poor and heal the sick like my Savior. Is that remarkable to you? Nine out of the top ten hospitals were started by followers of Christ, motivated by the words of Jesus. Listen, I get it. If you're, if, you're, if you're a skeptic, it's totally fine, your own opinions. No matter how you feel about Jesus or Christians, can I just speak to you personally? If you're having a heart attack, <laughs> or your mom has a major surgery, you want to be in one of these top ten hospitals. Okay? Although they got Christian names, they're happy to care for atheists, Muslims, Hindus, people of any or no religion at all. Again, this is factual evidence of Christianity's positive impact. And it may be surprising, guys, because what I've noticed is that our generation has been educated to believe that Christianity is bad for society. Now, have you heard that? Like, oh, religion is toxic, especially Christians. They're just political. That, that somehow Christianity hinders human progress. But let me just ask you this question. Like, what if the historical facts reveal the exact opposite of what you've been told? Let me show you a picture. In a lot of ways, Christians in culture are like sea otters. Have you ever seen otters? Everybody go, ooh, they're so cute. They're so cuddly. You know, you see them playing in the ocean. Sea otters have to be one of the most cutest uh, animals that nature has ever produced. Sometimes you'll see them like floating on their backs with their babies on their belly, holding hands or just napping in the sun. But the cuteness factor isn't why Christians are like sea otters. Marine biologists have discovered that sea otters are a keystone species. In other words, all other forms of life in the ocean depend on otters. And when sea otters are present in the ecosystem, all ocean life thrives. The plankton, all the way up to the great white sharks and the whales, they flourish. But if you take sea otters out of an ecosystem, all life deteriorates. It falls apart for all species. Now check this out. In California, sea otters were hunted to near extinction in the 1920s. And Monterey Bay became lifeless and stagnant. Why is that? Because biologists discovered that thousands of ocean creatures come to Monterey Bay to feed on underwater forests of sea kelp. Have you ever seen that? In, like, in, in like Finding Nemo, those giant seaweed trees, so they could be 175 feet tall. And those forests of sea kelp provide food for thousands of ocean creatures, but there's this little sea urchin who loves to feed on and infect the kelp and actually destroys it, and there's no food left for the animals at the bottom of the food chain, and the whole ecosystem falls apart. But guess who loves 
to eat sea urchins. Guess who loves sea urchin sushi? You got it. The sea otter. They love to snack on sea urchins, which of course allows the kelp then to grow and flourish, elevating the life of all ocean creatures around it. In the 1970s, when zoologists reintroduced sea otters back in Monterey Bay, the ecosystem literally roared back to life. And today it's thriving with great white sharks and orca whales swimming thousands of miles to feast on its rich food supply. Guys, that's the power of a keystone species. It elevates the life of everything around it. Why do I tell you this? Because the reality is if you take the time, if you're intellectually honest, to investigate the historical impact of Christianity, you will discover that Christians are a keystone species for human society. Wherever Christ followers are planted, human flourishing follows. They dramatically improve society for all people, regardless of religious belief. Take a look at this mosaic. At the forefront of every major social movement, you will find Christians. Founding hospitals, I've told you about Mary Mose and John Hopkins, there's many more. Ending slavery, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Wilberforce, all passionate Christ followers who fought for racial justice and actually abolished open slavery. They were pioneering medicine, starting universities. I mean, look at that. It's incredible. Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. Did you know they were all founded by Christians for the purpose of training pastors? Actually training them in the scriptures. Each one, I'll show you this in the weeks to come, has Bible verses embossed in their logos, just like John Hopkins. Christians were at the forefront of pioneering the scientific revolution. Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler, all passionate Christ followers. And their scientific breakthroughs dovetailed with the Protestant Reformation when people began opening the Bible for themselves, elevating education and literacy for all. Do you guys even realize this? 300 years ago, very few people could read, let alone write. Nobody could read. It was only after the Protestant Reformation where Christians said, we believe everybody should be able to read themselves, and we want our kids to read the Bible. So wouldn't it be awesome if we had a thing called a uh, school, like a Bible school? Make it open for the public, like public school. That's why you go to school. If you look at the historical evidence, Christ followers have been at the vanguard, the very front of social progress, leading the way in making the world a better place. The fact is Christians are like sea otters. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a sea otter. I'm a sea otter, man. Their presence leads to human flourishing. That is a fact. Listen to me. I, I just get passionate about this because a lot of people have a lot of feelings today about Christians, a lot of feelings about faith. They say, well, it's just emotional. Listen, every person is entitled to their own feelings, but they are not entitled to their own facts. And you can see the sea otter effect of Christianity if you'll be intellectually honest and look at the facts. For example, take the global data on women's rights. Can we just all agree? I think we'd all agree. Show of hands. Can everybody agree that like championing women's rights your daughters, your mom, your grandma, championing women's rights, that's a positive goal, that's a progressive goal. Awesome. So let's look at the evidence. How about the 10 best nations right now for women's rights in the world today? Take a look. This is not out of the Bible, this is the World Economic Forum. These are the 10 nations that lead the world with equal pay for women, the right to vote, the right not to be sold into marriage, for women to be educated in positions of influence, what do these 10 nations have in common? Put it back up on the screen. What do they have in common? All 10 were founded on historic Christian values and principles. 
That's the sea otter effect. Now watch this. What if you take Christians out of that ecosystem? Right now, what are the 10 worst nations for women's rights in the world today? Take a look, new chart. All 10 are countries where Christianity has been outlawed or is socially punished. Yemen, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, and these nations understand right now today, women are still denied education, they're sold into marriage, they're denied voting rights, they're not allowed to drive cars or go outside without a man. Listen to me, several of those nations still practice the barbaric ritual of genital mutilation on young girls. It's mind-boggling. All of these nations have outlawed Christianity. Friends, that's a picture of the ocean without sea otters. Again, this isn't personal feelings. These facts come from non-Christian sources. So no matter how much, uh, just listen, I'm not like beating up other cultures. We want to respect other cultures. But let me tell you something. If you're a parent with a daughter like me, you do not want her living in one of those repressive nations, an anti-Christian culture. You want your girl, your daughter, to grow up in a Christian-influenced culture because she'll have more rights, more education, more equality in a world that's historically influenced by the God of the Bible, the Jesus Christ of history, than in a nation that is not. This isn't feeling, this is fact. You don't have to be religious to acknowledge the facts. Guys, over the next few weeks, we are going to take a hard look at a mountain of evidence for advances in human freedom, science and medicine, human rights, literacy, education, and what you're going to see is a pattern emerge. You're going to see this upward spiral of radical social transformation wherever Christians saturate culture. The, 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 the correlation, that's not a coincidence. Next week, we're going to look at the, the lives and the faith of people like Harriet Tubman and William Wilberforce. They fought for racial justice. You're going to see the sea otter effect. The person of Jesus Christ was their inspiration, the spark, the catalyst, and they ended open slavery and advanced racial equality. Do we have miles to go? Of course we do. But make no mistake, the story of global Christianity is an upward spiral. Wherever Christians take root, human flourishing follows. You, my friends, are a keystone species empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And that story continues today. Let me ask you this. What are the odds? What are the odds that 2,000 years after Jesus walked this earth, you and I get to be part of changing the world in his name? I mean, have you ever wondered? I'll close with this. How is it possible? I mean, how is it possible that a penniless preacher, Jesus had no money, no home, a penniless preacher from no-nothing Nazareth could launch a global movement that would spread across the world in the last 2,000 years? Let me tell you, statistically speaking, it's improbable. And without God's power, it's impossible. I want you to think about the final words Jesus spoke. This is the final promise he made right before he returned to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to his followers, But you will receive power. Everyone say power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my what? My witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, he gave very specific geographical, this is not pie in the sky like I'm just going to, you know, take over somewhere. He said this is how it's going to go. And let me tell you, a lot of historical figures have made a crazy claim like that. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, they all said our empires will spread to the ends of the earth. And of course they didn't. <laughs> they fizzled, they failed, they had armies and land, but their movements collapsed. It's just ancient history. 
But here comes a penniless preacher from know-nothing Nazareth saying, my movement after I leave, it's going global. Guys, do you understand? When Jesus spoke these last words and made this bold prediction, there were fewer than 500 Christians. It's fewer people than in this room right now. They had no land, no political party, no army. No, they were geographically stuck in one city. In fact, Christianity had a teeny tiny footprint when Jesus made this claim. Look at this map of the world. This is from 33 AD. Do you see where Christianity is? You can't even see it. It's a tiny little dot. One little speck there in Jerusalem. A few hundred people huddling in this tiny attic, this tiny room, the upper room. And it looked even crazier because those 500 Christians were being hunted and killed. What are the chances Jesus' words would come true to the ends of the earth? Well, today there's a research organization called the Pew Research Center. They spend millions of dollars every year measuring the global spread of world religions. And according to their findings, Jesus' prediction has not only come true, put the map up, Christianity has indeed spread to the literal ends of the earth, the entire globe. Those blue regions are where Christianity has taken root today. And the researchers put a footnote. They said, understand, the lighter regions are underreported because they're in countries like China where Christianity is outlawed, so the church has to be underground. Now, as you look at that, I know so what some skeptics are thinking. You're like, well, Tim, what about the white area at the bottom? There's no Christians down there. Well, that's Antarctica, okay? <laughs> Apparently, the penguins aren't believers yet. They're still skeptics. We're praying for them, all right? <laughs> Guys, what's the point? Whether you believe that Jesus is God or not, his impossible prediction has come true. He said, my followers will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to spread word of me to the ends of the earth, and it's happened. It is happening right now. It is happening here today. You and I are hearing the real story of a real God-man named Jesus Christ, who really lived, who really died on a real cross for your sins, and then was really raised back to life. And that real God has transformed the lives of billions of ordinary people like Frederick Douglass and Mary Mose and William Mayo and Johns Hopkins providing that God uses ordinary people who devote their lives to Christ to do extraordinary good in this world and transform our broken planet. And that movement continues today. And skeptic or not, you're invited to be part of that. Millennials, you were made for this. You literally are the justice generation. And God designed you to be part of this keystone species, to join the story of committed Christ followers, elevating justice, freedom, healing the sick, caring for the poor, fighting for human rights for all. So can I just encourage you? Don't base your faith about Jesus on personal feelings. Base it on historical fact. And the fact is, wherever Christians take root, human flourishing follows. Amen? Be encouraged, church, and be a sea otter. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you just for the expanse, Lord, of your kingdom come. It's coming. The gates of hell cannot stand against it. Your people filled with the Spirit going out into every area, every sector of society and transforming it. God, we don't do it perfectly. Oh, I've made so many mistakes myself, God. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us where we've gotten it wrong, Father God, where we've given Jesus a black eye. But Father God, let us never give up. Because we know, Father God, the world is on an upward spiral as it turns to you. 
Father, I pray for every person listening who might have doubts and questions. Would they feel welcome, Father? Would they feel your open arms saying, come explore me like you did to Thomas? Come put your fingers in the holes in my hands, the, the, the gash in my side. Come explore me. You are a God who wants to be explored and touched and known. So I ask that you'd reveal yourself in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.